0: This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Alex Kisnabish and Ajay Parasram about their brand new book, frequently asked white questions. This is a really fun conversation and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Not only do we cover anti-racism and popular education, but how does humor play a role in having these difficult conversations? Frequently Asked White Questions is available as of November 1st, and if you listen to the end of this episode, you'll hear Ajay talk about all of the different events that you can hit up if you're interested in learning more. I want to start off um, by hearing the story of how this book came to be. Tell me about the origin of this project.
1: The project originally started over a few casual drinks that Ajay and I were having uh, and talking about the fate and state of the world. This would have been just um, a few months prior to to the pandemic starting, actually. And, um, you know, we had this idea that we wanted to open up a space where... Um, mostly well-intentioned white people could come and ask questions that they didn't feel that they were able to ask in more explicitly social justice settings where they might be worried about being called out or shouted down or just looking stupid for not knowing a fairly basic bit of information about anti-racism or racial justice. And so we cooked up this idea that we'd have these in-person discussion sessions and we wanted to call them safe space for white questions. And the first one we we ran uh, was actually on uh, on Dalhousie campus in Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia. It was just prior to the pandemic starting in like March 2020. And uh, it was relatively successful, but uh, as a result of the pandemic and also our reflections that we wanted this to be something that was more accessible to a broader community that wasn't tied to the university like so much... um, so much activism tends to be today, especially amongst younger uh, demographics we thought uh, going online made a lot of sense especially once we were all locked down in our in our individual spaces and uh, and and we kicked it off as a uh, as a digital version of safe space for white questions uh, a few months later Fernwood uh, heard about it got excited about it and very graciously offered to do the technical And promotional bottom lining for it. And a couple of years later, here we are, it's still still going strong. So that's uh, sort of the genesis of the the whole series and where it came from.
2: And then part of the reason why, you know, we thought eventually uh, we were chatting with um, Fazila Jiwa, who's the editor on the book, and she also was doing a lot of the tech work, uh, supporting us on the actual YouTube show. And she was actually getting, like, I don't know, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but, like, a little bit annoyed about the fact that we would get the same questions often, like, or over and over. And uh, it was kind of her idea to be, like, have you guys thought about maybe writing a book about the frequently asked white questions? And then... Uh, I think what sold it for me when Alex and I were talking was the realization that we could justifiably call the introduction for fact's sake, (laughs) (laughs) F-A-W-Q, and that was reason enough to write a book.
0: (laughs) That is reason enough to write a book, and I'm glad that you you mentioned that questions kept on coming up, Ajay, because that was my next question. Like, it seems like you had the architecture of this book in place just by the nature of the same questions coming up over and over. So how did those um, repeated questions or similar kind of themes that would arise in these events help to inform the way you structured this book?
2: Well, when we... um, so. Used uh, very usefully, we had uh, transcripts, you know, for accessibility reasons, we also produced uh, transcripts of all of our, our, our episodes, and there's, I think, 18 of them or 19 of them in the can now. So when we started going through the transcripts, it was really like, and Alex did the bulk of this work, he really kind of like identified in a more social scientific way what those kind of recurring themes were and then we talked about it and paired it up with just our lived experience you know because we've also been asked all kinds of weird questions over the last 20 30 years um so pairing that those two up and then looking for the recurring patterns uh and it was interesting you know a lot of the things that we found uh were quite humanizing things people uh, are concerned about the welfare of their kids, uh, especially their like young white male kids, you know. So it it demonstrates that there's a lot of misinformation about you know how equity works, or there is so much concern at times about you know the fear that Indigenous people want to take people's lands away. Uh, so concerns about land back in light of what was happening in the news. So I would say like the news would inflect. Uh, people's anxieties that were themselves grounded in deeper kind of settler colonial mythologies. So it was a neat process of trying to pair that up and uh, kind of like looking at our own experiences combined with the recurring themes that followed the news cycles in some very real sense.
0: Alex, would you say that there was a typical kind of individual that would attend these talks or was there quite a lot of different kinds of people that would participate
1: I think at at points it was hard to tell, of course, because one of the – I think one of the strengths of the series uh, online on our, our YouTube show right now is that people are welcome and encouraged to participate essentially anonymously. So you can write in questions to our, our Google form in advance or in real time, and, uh, and they get delivered to us and, and we take them up as long as they're not too, too trolly. Um, but um, that, that often means that people don't, uh, don't identify themselves. You can read a lot into the into the kind of question you're getting and imagine uh, the person who is asking it uh, and sometimes um, you know you get some some biographical background in the question itself and i I found I think Ajay probably uh, can confirm this, that as our series has gone along, I think we've gotten more of those questions. So people explicitly kind of situating themselves in the narrative. And then, you know, like the story uh, Ajay was just telling about, you know, oh, I'm, I am I have a kid, and this is what's going on, and I'm worried about this. or uh, So you get enough information about people. Uh, so I don't think, you know, I'd, I'd love to think that we were getting a huge cross-section of society. But I still think you know we are to some extent. Um, you know we're we're largely up until the publication of the book anyway. We're entirely online. It's a YouTube format. You have to be kind of comfortable with that. So I think to some extent we're we're reaching a a fairly um, you know sort of a typical market that way. A, a group of people who are interested in in finding out about racial justice in in a digital world. But I also think that you know given the questions we've been getting, we're we're getting folks who are different stages of their life, who are in, uh, in you know, um, mixed-race relationships, we're getting people who are working jobs, we're getting students. Uh, so it's a pretty good cross-section right now, and um, we've had the great opportunity to talk to lots of different folks over the last couple of years.
2: One thing I would add to that, if I may, is also there's, in a sense, two different audiences that we always keep in mind. One is the audience that's posing the question in live, you know? But really, like one of, the, one of the kind of subtle motivations for this, and, and I remember having a conversation with three different non-white students in my office uh, over the, la- the preceding couple of years, each one of them came and were asking for advice about what to do with their roommates and friends who are like reading people like Jordan Peterson or like articles by Jonathan Kay and, you know, just feeling like they've got the whole world figured out. And they were asking where's the kind of left uh, response to this kind of thing. And so in a very real way, part of, I think, what we've always hoped is that um, maybe we could get into the algorithms here somehow so that when kids are staying up late at night watching, you know, Hateful videos that maybe this might pop up in the uh, in the sort of what do you call it the recommended views in some way. It'd be something I would love to actually. I don't know if you can do that in an in an actual deliberate way. Uh, Alex and I obviously are not the most technologically savvy people, but uh, that would be the secondary audience as well. Or the people who are going to be picking up on it after the fact. And we've seen through looking at you know repeats where it, it's not a viral show by any shape. Uh, but it is um, something that people seem to come back to later, later as well.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's definitely a, a in that sense. It's a reference book, right? It's something that you can pick up and 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 check something specific if you're looking for an answer. And I imagine there will be quite a lot of people who do have people in their lives that they're hoping that they can steer in a different direction or give them an alternative narrative or whatever. That would be very interested in this book.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's certainly the hope. And and it's also, yeah, that's exactly why the book, I think, makes sense out of the project.
0: Mm -hmm. Alex, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the process of co-writing a book, Um, because that for me, I mean, as an author, I think, oh, my goodness, (laughs) that
1: is (laughs)
0: potentially daunting. And I'll ask Alex first. uh, And then, of course, Ajay jump in. What was it like to co-write this?
1: Um it was a great pleasure to co-write this actually. I've I've actually done a lot of co-writing in my in my life so um I'm pretty comfortable with it. I really like collaborating and um while I've uh, I've written some sole authored books and articles and all that good stuff. I also have quite a few uh, co-edited and co-authored uh, pieces out there. And I just, I've always felt that, you know, really my best work comes out of collaborating with other people who are smarter than me, uh, including audience members who, you know, who come up with all kinds of insights. So uh, this project was definitely uh, unique for me. It was, I think the, the most uh, publicly accessible Book I've ever tried to write. Uh, I have another book out there about the Zapatistas that was written for a, a fairly mainstream audience and non-academic audience. But really, other than some articles that I've written, you know, that stuff tends to float in fairly uh, academic circles. And this one really was an attempt to speak as engagingly and plainly as possible to uh, to a non-specialist audience. So I think um, you know, certainly Ajay can correct me if he feels I'm wrong. But uh, I think we, we we had a really good rhythm, and we uh, we tend to riff off of each other pretty well. So the um, and the great thing was that we had, as as Ajay already mentioned, we have all these transcripts to work from. So. We had this kind of conversational tone built into the chapters themselves as we were going back through the episodes and looking for the kind of greatest hits that we'd assembled over the course of nearly 20 episodes, uh, seeing those common themes and threads. So actually, uh, you know, and again, I'd be remiss without pointing to the very hard work of the great folks at Fernwood who did a lot of the behind the scenes work. Making sure our voices blended, making sure the style sounded, uh, you know, like it wasn't too sort of, you know, uh, multiple personality-ish and was consistent and engaging and accessible and all that kind of stuff. So a big, a big thank you to our editor, Fazila Jiwa, of course, but also all the, uh, the proof and copy editors at Firmwood 2 and our, our reviewers who kept us honest.
0: Ajai, what it was it like for you?
1: I hate that Alex Kasnabish guy. I can't stand him.
2: (laughs) No, it was amazing. It was a really good process. And in part, it was because it's such a different kind of book. Um, You know, I'd echo that bit about when we write, especially when we write like academic texts, theoretical texts. I love that stuff, too. Don't get me wrong. But it's just such a different experience, like grappling with it um and and this book as it was intended to be so conversational structurally it was like a really different piece of writing so I've done a good amount of collaboration in writing before not not a ton uh and I generally prefer to write by myself um but writing with Alex especially in this book it was it was a complete joy in large part because it just felt like we were hanging out and I think that the feeling that we were hanging out is really important to the kind of tone and the the attempt at like precise gentleness, if that makes sense, uh, throughout the book. And it also, I think, speaks to the way in which, I don't want to say heavy-handed involvement, but more like active interest from the publisher about the book and the success of the book. And that's something, you know, having published with lots of different places and presses and in the academic world and, and whatnot, like most publishers just don't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like, they don't really care. They've committed to a book. They're going to publish the book, and that's it. But working with Fazila in particular and Fernwood more generally, there's just been so much support, even, like, after the fact, like, thinking about how, you know, to get the book in people's hands. And it's, like, seeing the value in it. Like, I feel like to some extent, without that influence, Alex and I might not have bothered to write this book because we wouldn't necessarily have seen it as, like, a necessary thing. But because Fernwood was kind of with us along the way, kind of being like, actually, you could do this. You know, we were playing around with ideas in the early stages where we would keep it as like almost dialogue as opposed to the way that we ended up writing it. I think it's better the way that we wrote it. It's a little bit easier to read because, I don't know, otherwise it would read like a weird, you know, like a play or something. It's not a play, <laughs> but um I think Fernwood's involvement at every step of the process has really helped to shape the book into something that I think is going to be able to appeal to a much wider audience than what we are able to reach just on the online show.
0: Hmm. Now the book is not yet out, and this is a series of uh, of podcast interviews with other Fernwood authors, where I get to say, you know, how have you changed since the book has been published, or what would you have changed, uh, or or maybe added, or whatever. Uh, you know, looking back, I th- I think you're probably too close to the the last draft. <laughs> if I mm-hmm. know what the timelines <laughs> are like, publishing. <laughs> Um, so instead, you know, considering the people listening to this won't have a chance to actually get their hands on the book for a couple of weeks or months, depending on, on when they tune in. Alex, can you tell us a part of the book that you're particularly fond of or found fun to write or think is important?
1: Um, Sure. It's it's all genius and everybody should own a copy. No, in all all seriousness, um, the I I think one of the greatest um, uh, contributions of the book is, you know, at the end of each chapter, we uh, we sort of distill a key principle uh in in a one or I think a maximum two sentences uh that comes out of the conversation we had in the chapter and then and then we list them at the end as a complete list. And I think that list is is a really excellent resource for people who are looking for a kind of a quick and dirty guide to doing anti-racism, especially uh as a white person in society, better. Um but um if you can ask me personally, I think um, I really loved writing the chapter on anti-racism in the family. How to bring that into uh, your family relationships? And I'm just talking about the the chapters I wrote. I loved AJ's chapters too, of course. But uh, uh, from my perspective, it's um, you know I've spent a lot of my academic career and sort of my political organizing career um, thinking about like big issues and fairly abstract ones, uh, you know, arguing about that stuff and thinking about big political ideas. And I really loved the opportunity to uh, write a chapter that really brought it all home and just, you know, centered it in the midst of people's intimate kin relationships. And it was one of the most common questions we got. Lots of people very concerned about it. It felt really human and um, was one of my favorites. But uh, I, I have to say that I think Ajay in particular has a real talent for um wonderfully uh illustrative examples like he's got these vignettes that he's just throughout the book um and that he uses in our in our safe space for white question series that I think really like really kind of ground and materialize the conversation for people and I think people are really going to enjoy that.
0: Ajay, what, what about you? What what stands out now that you've probably read the draft like a hundred times right. and you probably don't <laughs> ever want to look at it again.
2: <laughs> that, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um but what what are what, what do you get most uh feel most proud of or get most excited about when you think about what uh what you've written?
2: Well I was actually gonna talk about Alex's chapter in the family too, because I think that one's my favorite in the book. But uh in terms of the ones that I've written, um I do really like the, the storytelling pieces which is not something that's in any one chapter but I try and weave it throughout all the various chapters and it serves two purposes one is uh, I hope that it people will read it and find it disarming through humor because I we really try to we really try to make some of this stuff funny you know because although it's really really heavy some a lot of it is kind of hilarious in the everyday like the weird circumstances that you find yourself in And uh, so in the spirit of that, you know, sometimes we poke a little bit of fun, like we we wrote some dialogue, like hypothetical dialogue based on like a 100 different, like predominantly white barbecues that we've been at, you know, so there's like little, little things like that, that I hope people will appreciate the humor in. Um, But the kind of secondary reason for including things like that, and, and especially the personal anecdotes is because a huge part of what we want to accomplish in the book and what I hope comes across in our writing is that we've made a ton of mistakes over the years. You know, like when you read this book, you're almost going to see, you know, the editor mentioned at one point, it's almost like a memoir of your fuck ups, (laughs) which in part it is because we want people to not to, to feel racially resilient in terms of being able to go out and learn how to make a good mistake, or do it, make a mistake in a good way and learn from it, because all of this, all of this stuff about you know just getting it right perfectly and not offending anybody, like well, what what that really does is it just builds up kind of like white complacency, uh, and I think Alex calls it uh, Alex names it a bunch of different things in some of his chapters, but we want people to feel that it's. It's, it's not just that it's better to do something rather than to do nothing, because sometimes it actually is better to do nothing, but it's about building up your ability to look at and analyze the everyday racism that's happening all around you uh, or right behind you at times and, and actually engaging in it purposefully. And there are exercises and strategies that people can do to build up that resilience so that when you get that horrible, awkward, awful, cold feeling in your chest, that you can kind of move towards it rather than run away from it.
0: Now, you're both writing against uh, the backdrop of a pandemic. And in this pandemic, there have been many themes of racism, of everything from the rising organization of the far right to the racist ways in which the pandemic had uh, impacted, differential impacts on racialized communities and on, um, on people who are poor, people who are wealthy and that kind of thing. Alex, can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic figures into the way that you approach these questions? Or, or did you have extra space uh, to kind of think um, because of the, of, the, of the way that the pandemic closed so much around us uh, and for so long?
1: Yeah, that's it's a great question for sure. Um, I mean, like, you know, I think everybody probably feels um, nothing we did over the last couple of years was untouched by the pandemic. And um, so it definitely did. It, it impacted everything from the way the series was running to the questions we were getting to the way Jai and I were working together. So, yeah, really, I mean, there's not there's not a part of this project or any other one that I was doing at, at this time that, that isn't touched by it. But it certainly, as you point out, um, you know, rifts off of many of the issues that that bubbled to the surface over the course of the pandemic, in, including all the issues of uh, injustice related to uh, people's experiences of uh, trying to navigate this uh, intense last couple of years, as you've written about, Nora. I think one of the biggest uh, effects for me, or the the thing that I tried to you know keep front and center in my mind, was just how in our society one of my one of my main convictions, and we talk about it in the book, is that the work of of like anti-racism or trying to achieve collective liberation is never something that can happen in isolation and one of the things that capitalism does to us is to uh rip us apart from our communities and each other and alienate ourselves uh not just from each other emotionally but obviously you know as workers from our ability to survive independently of capital and uh, that was all just really magnified i felt during the pandemic you know people felt incredibly isolated they felt uh, incredibly depressed, they were struggling just to make ends meet, they were losing their jobs, they were, you know, struggling with their kids at home, Uh, all these kinds of things. And I think it really magnified a lot of the issues that we talk about in the book, uh, but also brought a new sense of urgency to some of those questions. And rather than being kind of lost in the shuffle of, um, you know, the regular life under uh, the dystopia nightmare, dystopian nightmare that is late capitalism, people had also time to reflect on questions that they hadn't really given themselves time to think about before. And I think that was all really rich, to be honest. I think the, you know, the, the pandemic for all of its horrible outcomes, um, it really did provide an opportunity for people to reflect on uh, where they were at. And we certainly I think took up that opportunity to do that ourselves but also the book came out of that that kind of interruption this moment where we thought we could inject uh you know something of a new voice a new a new uh combined voice into this conversation and and try and advance the struggle for collective liberation in a way that white people could read about think about uh without just getting their backs up about and doubling down on the status quo
2: and in terms of some of the, um, you know, like some of the more specific things that came up in the book, I think as a result of the last couple of years of isolation, you know, we had to we had to write about conspiracy, conspiracy thinking and media literacy, uh, incels even making an appearance in there, like the politics of voting and then exercising family compassion in awkward times. And I think that a lot of that, you know, one of the bits that sticks out in me is like thinking about how um how to expect media literacy skills to be understood uh in the last several years when if you think about the average tech uh you know life of a 75 year old person how much technology has changed uh since that person might have entered the workforce to now you know like operating uh a typewriter and then like a computer that you would use with like a manual crank or some craziness like that you know like it's not I was just thinking it's not intuitively obvious to somebody that if they click five, six times in a single news article, that that's junk news, right? So being able to have compassion in the context of a isolating pandemic to know that, okay, maybe this person that's flipping out at you on social media, uh, you know, your uncle or whatnot, maybe if you actually can go and kind of like sit on a park bench and spend some time with one another, that it'll be better for both of you. And then the quality of your relationship, you'll actually communicate with one another more. And none of that is to slag on social media per se. You know, it's, it's neither a good or a bad thing, but I think it was trying to return people to the kind of human connections that's at the core of why we care about one another in the first place. So it was, you know, like that kind of like the optimism that is possible in a terrible situation like the pandemic and the various responses to it, um that that was one of the important themes i think that ran through several of the chapters
0: mm. yeah like listening to you talk and i'm i'm just brought back into all of the different ways that that community was was taken apart and and then watching people try to process what they were reading in whether it was mainstream news or alternative news and then try to put back together some sort of analysis that allowed them to like just exist <laughs> <laughs> was really, really difficult um and 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 some I was thinking in my like while you were both talking like i would this book have happened had there not been a pandemic? do you think
1: that's a good question uh, i think so I, I still think so yeah, i think um yeah, I think one of the things that um that that is very honest about this book is that it really did come out of uh, the conversations we were having with largely anonymous folks online. So, I mean, I guess like maybe if the pandemic hadn't have happened, maybe we wouldn't have gone online. Um, And if we hadn't gone online, maybe there wouldn't have been an impetus for it. It's true, because I think the, uh, you know, that online format really generated um, a lot of a lot of the the discussion that was uh, like way more open. And and if we'd been constrained to a university campus or if we just had a kind of a typical academic activist student audience for the most part, we would have just ended up treading the same ground. So yeah, maybe it's true. Maybe, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but I think, uh, I think because the pandemic pushed us online, and then the book came out of it, maybe I have to correct my original response and say, yeah, actually, maybe, maybe it was.
2: I am inclined to agree with that revised statement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in, in in some part, like, so one of the, I have, I have another book that I'm working on slowly, very slowly. That was a pre pandemic book project and it's called How to Talk to Your Racist Uncle, which is also uh, kinda with Fernwood. And in many ways, like I, I shelved that book because the whole approach just it just didn't seem to be responding to the urgent need for work like this. And, and that's why I think, you know, I agree with Alex. If we hadn't been pushed online uh, sort of unwittingly, we probably would have just been like any other kind of public education in person series. And, you know, I love public education. Don't get me wrong. But it wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had the transcripts. We wouldn't have had the quality of conversation necessarily. I mean, we might have. So I do another project too that's called the White Fragility Clinic um, with Gaynor Watson Creed. And that's an, it's not an in-person thing, but it's live so that you're seeing people and there's no transcripts and it's all, you don't talk about anything explicitly afterwards. So the conditions even for that one are such that there's no book or a book project that I think is, is, is coming out of that one. But the way that Safe Space for White Questions was designed in response to the sort of urgent need to continue to have these conversations in spite of not being allowed to gather, I think was, uh, I I think, a necessary um, condition for this particular book to emerge. Maybe a different book would have emerged if it wasn't for the pandemic, but this very much, I think, is a book that came about in the context of the pandemic.
0: I have one final question that's a broader question, and then I'm going to move to some rapid-fire questions that we're asking all of the authors in this series. So before we get to that, Alex, I'm wondering if you can explain why or if you think radical independent publishing is necessary.
1: I mean, it's you know, it's everything really. Like it's we know what the uh, you know corporate capitalist dominance of our media results in, and um, it's it's you know like nothing short of really an, an endless nightmare. <laughs> Although it can have some entertaining bells and whistles occasionally, we can get a great new series. You know, um, we can we can watch some great uh, reality TV. Um, and, uh, and that's about it and, and play endless video games. But if, if we really, and I like those things, I mean, I'm not even shitting all over that stuff. I, I do all those things, but, um, if we actually want thoughtful, incisive, rigorous, uh, important and, and meaningful commentary analysis on, on, on like On the world we live in on the problems we face on the opportunities that lie before us we absolutely need independent publishers of all sorts to sustain those visions to get those voices out there to make sure that we're not simply all you know under the yoke of uh like amazon and jeff bezos's uh you know like you know, self-publishing rubrics. Um, you know, if that's the best we can do, then then I think you know, like man, when I was a kid, I was promised robot butlers and jetpacks, and we certainly haven't gotten there. <laughs> but uh, the dystopia is more is more intense than even I gave it credit for being. I think, and um, and I just I think you know, it's a real credit to an organization like Fernwood, uh, now celebrating 30 years in the publishing business that they've managed to punch way above their weight and to be a significant force on the Canadian publishing scene and internationally as well, working with some great partners. But, um, you know, like I remember maybe a decade ago when, um, When ebooks were becoming a big thing, and everybody was convinced, you know, if you listen to uh, the corporate hacks, everybody was saying that ebooks are going to destroy conventional publishing and nobody's going to read a paper book anymore. And, you know, we saw the limits to that. And I mean, I have no problem with eBooks. I'm not, not shitting all over that format or anything like that. But, uh, just to say that, you know, some of the kind of like the, the, uh, there is no alternative rhetoric that we get from, um, you know, the powers that be is, is sort of like a, it's like a wish right on their part. They would like us to believe that. Um, but, One thing that's stubbornly held on in the face of all this uh, corporate expansion and dominance is this real, you know, the real bright spark of independent voices, thinkers, artists, organizers, intellectuals, whatever, um, finding ways to get their ideas out there. And I think particularly in um a really like beautifully prepared rigorously copy and proof edited uh, thoughtful approach to getting people's work out there Fernwood sets the standard especially in the Canadian context for uh for getting that work out there and continuing to fight the good fight in the face of some pretty formidable odds
0: Ajay why do you think independent radical publishing is important right now
2: I think it's so important, you know, like for all the reasons Alex said, but it always strikes me, you know, from the writer's perspective, if you're going to be anti-colonial and anti-capitalist in your analysis, why suspend that ethic when you think about publishing your work? Um, The priorities of a radical press are, are just completely different from that of the corporate press. And in that corporate press, I would include academic publishing as a sort of maybe a third pillar or something like that. And I guess I would may Alex kind of talked uh, at length there about the commercial press. So maybe I'll spend a few words talking about, you know, academic publishing and speaking to, you know, early career scholars who might be listening to this is to remember that the nonsense that people tell us about you have to publish with a university press. Otherwise, you won't advance your career. What they're really saying is you need something peer reviewed. And a radical press, a responsible press can actually do all of the things that you that you need from a so-called university press. And the difference is they actually seem to care about your book and they'll they, they put work into it. I mean, I shouldn't generalize. Right. My 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 experience is uh, with Fernwood. Uh, I want to believe that Fernwood's partners also publish in, in this kind of like involved way but you'd have to talk to people with better experience than than me. Uh, but we need to have these kinds of relationships between critical thinkers and critical presses who do things that are progressive in our communities, not because they want to be seen to be doing good things and market it in that way, but actually just because they understand the politics at play and that they're part of movements that are engaged. you know, and I think about this. You know, when I think about having watched some of the things that Fernwood's been doing over the last couple of years, you know, I've seen them like just write checks to progressive movements based on the sales of books that, like, you know, um, are about those those communities uh, without ever asking for anything, not even recognition, because they understand it as as like part of the politics, and they see themselves as publishers as being embedded in into the movements that they want to publish about and when you start seeing that like you know for me uh, i i just can't like i have one book currently um that's going to come out with an academic press and in part it's because um <laughs> really i signed the contract before i came to understand all of these things but also uh maybe that's too obscure of a topic and that general readers so i'm not trying to slag the other kinds of publishers. I'm just trying to say that we need radical presses and radical publishers because critical ideas uh, will not be given uh, a proper shake uh, if they're not published by an equally critical or radical press.
0: Yeah, and my experience certainly has been, you know, having editors who are embedded in those movements help to ensure that the product that is created, the the the, the final book that gets uh, put on the on the store shelves is as good as possible. I certainly walked in with a manuscript that looked very different <laughs> when we finally published it. When I uh, when I wrote "Take Back the Fight," so I totally hear you. We're gonna move into these rapid fire questions. I'm gonna ask each question to you separately. Um, and so, um, Alex, why don't we start with you? What is your favorite place to read or write?
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, my favorite place to read is on my back deck. My favorite place to write is perched on my little stool at my kitchen counter. Basically, <laughs> it's very undramatic, but that's true. Wow, a stool though—that's no back. Um, well, it has a back. It's—it's it's one of like oh, okay, but you know, it's—it's it's, I'm perched
0: right. Very nice. Ajay, what books are on your to-read pile right now?
2: Top of my list is an, another Fernwood book actually called Insurgent Love by Why not? I just have been meaning to like understand prison abolition. We even write about it in the book about how we want to, or at least I want to understand prison abolition uh, and abolition more generally better. So that one is uh, is top top of the list for me.
0: Alex, do you have a ritual that prepares you to write?
1: Uh, I do not, actually. I'm um, <laughs> I enjoy writing, and uh, because I have uh, kids at home and a partner who works very hard, and um, we live here uh, without family, we have gotten used to being very good at uh, finding the nooks and crannies in our daily uh, <laughs> routines that allow us to produce stuff. So, no, I have no ritual.
0: Ajay, what are you doing for fun right now?
1: I, uh, I have recently bought a bike
2: that is named Sabata Bike by my uh, three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and she has a Sabata Bike seat, and I have been just riding that bike into submission, and it's been amazing.
0: That's awesome. Do you, you know, in, in, in Quebec City, where I live, they just uh, had created a, a public system of bike share with like electric assist. Wow, And we're seeing all of these people uh, switch on to them from their cars. And there's this one guy uh, who's a, a dad of, a, of my kids' friends, who's now just got this permanent smile on his face. <laughs> it's <laughs> like the power of a bike.
2: <laughs> it's so true. It's so tr- I'm like a bike evangelical. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alex, uh, what is one book or maybe two uh, that has changed your life?
1: Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, Okay, uh, I think two books that changed my life. The first one is um, Our Word is Our Weapon, the Selected Writings of Subcomandante Marcos, spokesperson of the Zapatista Army of National Liberation. Uh, It's an amazing book. He's a beautiful writer. It, It absolutely... Changed my my perspective on everything, including how to speak a persuasive revolutionary language to people who are not interested in bureaucraties. Um, and uh, the other book I, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, name drop here is Caliban and the Witch by Sylvia Federici. Um, it's an amazing book uh, connecting um, the uh, the war against women historically, especially in the so-called West, uh, with the colonization of indigenous peoples in the so-called New World uh, and the enslavement of Africans, and uh, does an incredible job of, I think, appropriately excavating what primitive accumulation really is under capitalism. And it's a super important revolutionary book that everybody who wants to understand capitalism should read.
0: Awesome. The final question goes to Ajay. Who is someone you look up to?
2: Whoa, who is someone I look up to? Uh, I'm going to take a second to think about that one. Of course. I look up to lots of people, um, but I do kind of think, you know, like I, I teach a course on activism at the university sometimes. And, and one of the main points that I say to the, all of my students is, you know, murder your heroes because nobody yes. is really that pure <laughs> and nobody's that good. So I really like people who um, are complex figures, you know, um, I think uh, a good example might be B.R. Ambedkar, who was uh, an, uh, a leader in uh, late colonial and early uh, independence India. He was a Dalit uh, lawyer and intellectual who went on to write the Indian Constitution. And um, he's a real good example of somebody who fought um, in spite of unbelievable odds by any means necessary, using multiple means and uh, at all of his disposal uh, in a way that I think people that doesn't generally get recognized, especially in the West. Um, so, yeah, if, if, I, if I had my back against the wall, I would put in with uh, Ambedkar.
0: <laughs> That's great. Uh, tell us, where will people be able to get frequently asked white questions and are they able to still catch your online shows?
2: Yeah, so they're going to be able to get frequently asked white questions wherever beautiful books are sold. Uh, I don't know. There's probably a proper script to answer that question, but uh, you know. no, that's
0: it. <laughs> Remind us when it's when it will be available.
2: Sure, November the first is the release date. So I would encourage folks to check out um, you know the local local independent bookstores. Uh, we've got a couple of launches uh, set up in East Vancouver for November the 2nd, another one, the big launch in Halifax on November the 8th. Uh, I think Venus Envy is selling books there. Um, Massey Books in East Van, which is an Indigenous-owned and operated bookstore. And we're doing another one in Sackville, New Brunswick, uh, in December. So um, that's all coming up in the coming uh, couple of months. And what was the second question you had there?
0: Are people able to still catch the videos of of uh safe space for white questions
2: yes so the whole archive is available for free on the Fernwood Publishing uh channel uh YouTube channel and Alex correct me if I'm wrong but we're kicking off season three later this month is that right
1: that is correct
2: yeah I think whatever our our usual time slot is the last Wednesday of every month
0: Wow. So if you have any questions that you are burning to ask these two, uh, I guess, get them ready, because you'll be able to do that in the next couple of uh, next couple of weeks. Alex Ajay, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks
2: so much, Nora. It was great to be on. Thank you, Nora. I really appreciate it. And all the work that you do.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Alex Kisnabish and Ajay Parasram as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favourite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share your favourite episodes. I see years old, lo and behold, a fortress of magnitude they can't subdue. Liberation is radical. You're telling me my dreams have to be practical when all these global systems are tyrannical. Point of view, more than two.